We are beginning a new series today in the New Testament pastoral letter of the Apostle Paul to Titus. So will you turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Our sermon text today is the first four verses of Titus chapter 1. And once again, if uh, you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 167 of your New Testaments. The letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 1. Paul, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, moved by the Holy Spirit, was led to write his gospel associate, Titus, this letter, and it begins, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time, manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Two, Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. We'll end our reading here at verse 4. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that it might make an impact upon our minds and our thinking, that we will come to know better through the contemplation of this letter before us today and in the coming weeks, that we might come to know what is our hope of eternal life? What is your plan for the church and for those who lead it? Grant this for our benefit and for your greater glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, any congregation that plans soon to call a pastor does well to sharpen its decision-making instincts with a fresh study of Paul's pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus. Now, having said that, of course, I also need to say that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, including that training that's necessary to discern the will of God in such an important matter as we as a congregation are facing. After all, here are 66 books of the Bible, any and all of which can help lead us to our next under-shepherd. But measuring a man's suitability for a given congregation, or measuring our own suitability for that shepherd, can be difficult. It can be complex. It's a complex decision. We need to ask 
certain questions of ourselves as well as of him. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of a congregation are we? What kind of a people are we? That's the first question we ought to consider. What are our needs? And once we understand what our particular needs are as a congregation, then we need to consider what kind of a man do we need to lead us, to teach us. See, many things factor into evaluating and selecting a pastor. Which of them are the most important? The time is short before we, as a congregation, call a pastor. At least we hope the time is short. And so it does a congregation good to focus, at such a time as this, on the teaching of the pastorals. They lead us straight to the matter of what Christ Jesus delights to see. What Christ Jesus, the Lord of the church, delights to see, both in the men who shepherd his church, and also in the church that evaluates and calls and follows Christ's shepherds. So, during what remains of our congregation's pastoral hiatus, I hope to guide us through a fairly thorough study of Paul's letter to Titus, his fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, and a man that Paul himself called my true child in a common faith. Now, Martin Luther said of this letter to Titus, he said, this is a short epistle, but it contains such a quintessence of Christian doctrine and is composed in such a masterly manner that it contains all that is needful for Christian knowledge and life. Now, if that is an overstatement on Luther's part, it's not an overstatement by much. In 46 short verses, this letter, 46 verses of it total, Paul describes who he himself is, whom he considers Titus to be, and why he appointed him to serve on the island of Crete, He says the things wherein the promised hope of eternal life consists, the character credentials of church overseers, how we ought to confront threats to the peace and purity of the church. He addresses how old men in the church ought to live, how young men ought to live, how old women in the church ought to live, how young women in the church ought to live, how Christian slaves and citizens and others under authority ought to live, how and why and by whom we are saved unto eternal life. He lists the things that you, Titus, need to do for the various evangelists traveling through your region. He says where and when I want you next to meet me in our travels for the gospel. And oh, by the way, at the end he says, please say hello to all of our friends. All of that in 46 short verses. Not a word is wasted. And who could blame anyone for thinking, if only pastors today could say so much with such a small investment of breath and of ink. Paul's notorious, of course, for his long and complex sentences, 
But every single word of those sentences carries its own glorious weight. And it's so certainly in this letter to Titus. Now, if you take this letter to Titus, and you take the book of Acts, and you try to fit the one within the historical framework of the other, you're going to be disappointed. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a good practice to try. It works very well with many of the other Pauline epistles, and it's simply the Bible gumshoe work, the detective work, that you should expect of any pastor, especially one who opens an epistle to you, a New Testament epistle. He ought to be able to fit it into the ministry of Paul, where Paul was, to whom was he writing, where was he when he wrote it, and so on. Like a detective, the student of the New Testament takes a gospel or any historical account or an epistle and unravels the mystery of its origin, its historical origin. Where did this letter come from? And when? For whom was it intended? What situation did it address? What problems did it seek to solve? These are important questions because we can hardly make an appropriate application of God's revelation now if we can't figure out what its intended purpose was originally. This is where biblical exegesis starts and it's where we have to start. When you read the book of Acts, you find no situation corresponding to Paul's leaving Titus on the Mediterranean island of Crete to carry on the work of the gospel there. In fact, you find no mention of Titus at all in the book of Acts. Titus is one of those invisible men whose faithful labors as he traveled the whole Mediterranean world for Christ, humanly speaking, made Paul the effective apostle that he was to the Gentiles. It was because of men like Titus. In his travels, Paul was in the habit of sending faithful men on ahead of him. He kept faithful men behind with him. He sent faithful men out to his right and to his left. He developed men who were faithful to Christ, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the church Catholic, and faithful to churches in particular. In the, face of, uh, in the case of Titus, we find him in Galatians 2, going up to the Jerusalem council with Paul and Barnabas, and demonstrating in his own flesh as an uncircumcised Greek the fundamental truth of the gospel that we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith and not by the works of the law. We find Titus mentioned multiple times in 2 Corinthians as playing a very important role in overseeing that 
troubled congregation. Titus loved the Corinthians for the sake of Christ, and they loved and honored Titus. And his name appears finally in Paul's second letter to Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 10 of 2 Timothy. Titus is now gone from the imprisoned Paul on a mission to Dalmatia, the Western Balkans in present-day Albania. And that's the last we hear of Titus. He's been sent away from Paul to minister in the Balkans. But you don't find him in the book of Acts. And in the Acts, you don't find Paul on Crete, except as a prisoner bound for Rome on a ship waylaid by contrary winds in Acts chapter 27. That's the closest Paul got to the island of Crete in the Acts. It seems then that the situation best explaining Paul and Titus together on the island of Crete, the best situation to explain that is that of a fourth missionary journey, a fourth one, that takes place after Luke's account in the Acts closes. After Paul is finally, and of course justly, released from his first Roman imprisonment around the year 61 or 62 A.D. So the Acts of the Apostles is a very, very important book, but when we read it, we sometimes have to remind ourselves that the age of the Apostles didn't come to a close at the end of Acts chapter 28. Paul still has six or seven good years of fight left in him for the gospel of which God made him a steward. And that's just Paul, let alone the other apostles. Paul still has six or seven good years of fight left after him after his release from the first Roman imprisonment. So it must have been during those later years that Paul writes this letter. And the church on the island of Crete likely didn't begin with a visit by Paul and Titus either. You may remember that as early as the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it was even upon Cretans and Arabs that the Holy Spirit rested, causing them to speak with new tongues the mighty deeds of God. Those were Jewish pilgrims from the diaspora, the dispersion, all through the Mediterranean world. They're Jewish pilgrims who were in Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost and then returned to their own homes, spread across the whole inhabited earth, and brought with them the news of what had just taken place in Jerusalem. And again, some of those Jews, the Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, some of them returned home to Crete. So let's sum up what we know or can reasonably deduce concerning the origins of this letter. Paul the Apostle 
Released from his first Roman imprisonment, sometime after those two full years of house arrest described in Acts 28, Paul is once again at large in the Mediterranean. Sometime between A.D. 62 and his martyrdom at Rome in A.D. 68, he makes a fourth missionary journey whose route we can only guess. But Titus is with him this time, at least until he reaches Crete. Titus is with Paul. On Crete, if he's true to form, we can suppose Paul set the Cretans straight on a number of things doctrinally. We can suppose he preached Christ in their synagogues first. We can suppose that he suffered at the hands of unbelieving Jews there, that he then turned to the Gentiles, which was his way, and brought the fledgling church there, composed of Jew and Gentile alike, to a fuller understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ and their eternal inheritance in him. The time eventually comes for Paul, whether he was there for a long time or a short time, we don't know, but the time comes for him to move on. And he leaves Titus there in Crete with the general mission of setting things in order, setting in order those things that remain, including specifically the appointment of elders in every city where Christ had been preached. Their next appointed time together, their next appointed meeting, according to Titus 3, verse 12, is at the city of Nicopolis on the northwest coast of Achaia sometime that coming winter. All that we can deduce from the text itself. But where is Paul in the meantime as he writes Titus? We know where Titus is. Where is Paul when he writes? Corinth makes some geographical sense as you look at a map. Some say it might have been Macedonia from which Paul wrote this letter. In actuality, it's anyone's guess where Paul was when he wrote this letter. And having done what we can, we do well finally to humble ourselves with a simple and true confession. We don't know. We don't know where Paul was. He was out preaching the gospel. What we do know is that in the course of Paul's apostolic ministry, he brought the ancient art of letter writing to its fullest flower. He takes a standard classical format and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he fills it with such heavenly grace that he's able to make even unruly and divided churches, even churches at the very brink of apostasy, to hear him and finally be brought to peace with him and with the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul's letters did for the church. Now, we who live in North America have formats that we've grown accustomed to as well, literary formats. We begin a letter in a certain way. Dear so-and-so, how are you? I am fine. Typical way 
Uh, the words might be a little different, but that's a typical way we begin a letter. And on we go. But the ancient classical format for any letter's salutation, not just Paul, but any letter, was essentially this. It followed the format or the pattern, me to you. Greeting. Me to you. Greetings. That was the form of written address that predates not only the Romans and the Greeks, it predates even the Persians before them. Now, how do we know this? We know it from the Bible. We know that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, nearly six centuries before Christ, writes in Daniel 4 according to this very same pattern. Nebuchadnezzar the king, that's me, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, that's you, may your peace abound. That's the greeting. Me to you, greetings. There's the classical pattern. But I want you to look at the beauty and the grace and the power with which the Holy Spirit adorns this ancient form of address. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So we can forget the old, dear so-and-so, how are you doing, I'm fine, business. The doctrinal meat and muscle of this letter start in its very opening words. He identifies himself to Titus, Paul. And you might think that that would be enough between friends. Paul. That's who I am. And that would be enough if this were just a letter between friends, if it were just a letter between Paul and Titus. I sign my letters to friends with only my first name. But if there's a wider audience, or if there's some kind of official purpose to my writing, then I might use letterhead above and a signature block below, a signature block that might have all kinds of letters following my name. The older I get, the stuffier, the more impressive a signature block gets. This letter to Titus had both an official purpose and also a much wider audience than just one man, Titus, Paul's friend. Beyond Titus, this is a letter for the church in Crete. It's a letter, in fact, for the whole church 
throughout all this present age until Christ returns on the clouds of glory. This is a letter for us, the church. It's a compendium of practical Christian doctrine, or as Luther said, the quintessence of Christian doctrine. So although to Titus, Paul might have just been Paul, the fact is he isn't just Paul. He's Paul with apostolic credentials that befit the glorious apostolic doctrine that he can scarcely wait to share. He can't get out of the gate before he starts saying what his life is all about. It begins with, from me, but even before I can get to the to you part, I have quite a bit to say about this ministry to which God called me. First, Paul says, I am a bondservant of God. I am a bondservant of God. There were many making the rounds in Crete that day, and there are many making the rounds in Texas today, claiming to be the same claiming to be bondservants of God, but actually living as though that relationship were turned around, the other way around, living as though they were the Lord's, as though God our Savior and the doctrine concerning him were something to be used, something to be twisted and manipulated as necessary for their own personal advantage. And Paul has some straight talk about those people, beginning down in verse 10, which we'll get to in a subsequent week. It's why the churches on Crete needed the elders that Titus was appointing. It was to silence that kind of men, silence those rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, he says, who for the sake of sordid gain are tearing the church and her families apart. Dear friends, in our search for a pastor, let's be very careful to find ourselves a man, a pastor, who is, first of all, a genuine servant of God. Before he's anything else, he must be a bondservant of God. Let's find him and call him and pay him, and nurture him, and love him, and listen to him, and cling to him, and to his family. Because by doing so, you will be inoculating our congregation against the rebels, and the empty talkers, and deceivers that seem especially to infest a city like San Antonio. So Paul is a bondservant of God, first and foremost, but much more specifically, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. On the Damascus Road, Jesus Christ had stopped the persecutor in his tracks. And he had not only stopped the persecutor, but he had actually commissioned him and sent him into the mission field with that specific apostolic credential as an eyewitness of his glory. 
Paul's apostleship was a little different from the other apostles, wasn't it? Nevertheless, on the Damascus Road, Paul was an eyewitness of Christ's glory. It was a special calling and credential that never ceased blazing in front of him, in front of his mind. It was always the foremost in his mind. I've been called as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never let that apostolic calling simmer on the back burner of his mind while he did something else. He took no vacation from it. To be an apostle was his work, it was his hobby, it was his food, it was his drink, it was his family, it was Paul's life to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we might ask why? Why would such a loving heavenly father as Paul had and as we have why would he call any man to bear such an awful burden, such an absolutely consuming work as the office of apostle? Why would God do that to a man? Even here, right at the beginning, Paul tells us why. He's an apostle, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the recognition of the truth which is according to godliness. That literally is what he says of himself in verse 1. That's why he's an apostle. So he's not an apostle simply to enjoy the prestige of being an apostle. He's not an apostle simply to enjoy the opportunities that it affords him to travel to meet lots of interesting people, or to get any personal satisfaction out of the experience of being an apostle. As for the prestige, we know about the prestige of an apostle. Paul already told the Corinthians that Paul himself had become as the scum of the world, the dregs, of all things, for the gospel's sake. As for the travel experiences being an apostle afforded him, he recounts them this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's speaking of himself. He's speaking of his own personal experience over the past few years. He says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, 
dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. That is the life of an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the office of apostle meant in a practical sense, practical day-to-day sense to this man, Paul. Do you ever try to put yourself in the apostles' shoes as you read the New Testament? Do you ever ask yourself how far you would have gotten in this life? If I'd made the first missionary journey like Paul's first missionary journey, would there have been a second one? Not to mention a third or a fourth. Paul's office, the office that he held as an apostle, isn't with reference to himself, nor was Titus's office as an evangelist about himself, nor will our next pastor's office be about himself. Will he find spiritual refreshment even in the discharge of his pastoral duties? I hope so. He should through the inward ministry of the Holy Spirit? Will he and his family enjoy their service among us? I hope so, and you should hope so too. You should work hard to make it so that he enjoys his stay and his family enjoys their ministry here among us. But in the last analysis, that's not the point. The enjoyment of the office isn't the point. As for Paul's apostleship, it was always outward-looking. It had in view the benefit of others, not self. It had in view the furthering of the faith of God's elect, and then, to the recognition of the truth, which is according to godliness. I want you to pay special attention to that phrase, according to godliness, because it takes us well beyond the matter of faith to that of life, to the matter of our daily conduct, our demeanor. Our demeanor, our outward conduct as Christians, actually matters. Our own San Antonio Commission has had to deny communicant membership to more than one applicant because their personal conduct didn't reflect a credible, that is, a believable profession of faith. The behavior of a professing Christian that is scandalous, that is ungodly, is a stumbling block to others. But the knowledge of the truth, Paul says here, the knowledge of the truth is according to godliness. Our doctrine shapes 
our behavior. It must. Paul was made an apostle as a safeguard to the church. How are the elect of God able to recognize true Christian doctrine? Men, after all, can be so cunning. Men can be so crafty. If false teachers weren't, if false teachers were easy to spot, then they wouldn't represent a threat to the church, would they? If all false teachers and apostate pastors went about in orange polka dot blazers and purple scarves around their neck, they wouldn't be a threat to us. The problem is that false teachers dress like the sheep. They look like ordinary Christians. They look like perhaps uh, even extraordinary Christians. These rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers who are mentioned a few lines below. We are only human. We're only able to look at the outward appearance. We're not able to look at a man's heart. So how are we supposed to tell a good pastor and his teaching from a hypocrite and his? It's just this, that true Christian doctrine, that is, apostolic doctrine, yields true Christian living. A tree is known by the fruit it bears. And the rest of the letter reinforces this. Titus is a letter about how we ought to live. How we ought to live. Not just what we ought to believe, not what we ought to think. How we ought to live. The doctrine, pure and heavenly as it may be, the doctrine is just a means to that end. It's not about the power to manipulate words, but the power to grant and convey life, the power to change and transform habits. Our habits, our routines reflect what we believe about Jesus Christ. And it's Paul's calling as an apostle to set us straight on these things so that we can accurately identify sin and mortify sin and begin to live in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. In a nutshell, that's the hope of the gospel for me and for you. It is not just so that we might know something, not just so that we might be able to parrot words. It's so that we can be transformed into something that is eternally vital and beautiful and pleasing to God. That's the hope of the gospel. This really brings us to the theme statement of the whole letter. The New American Standard Bible begins uh, verse 2 with the English preposition in, doesn't it? In the hope of eternal life. 
But the Greek preposition here, epi, first means in a general sense, upon, or in this place, I believe, concerning. So here's what he's saying. This letter that I, Paul, am now writing to you, Titus, this is a letter concerning the hope of eternal life. It's upon this matter, this marvelous hope of eternal life and all that it means practically in the life of the church, it's upon this that I want to write to you. And all that follows in this letter is an unfolding of that glorious hope of eternal life. Time fails me this morning to go any further than merely introducing this theme the hope of eternal life. The next time we're together, God willing, which is going to be in a couple of weeks now, the next time we're together, we'll consider again this hope of every Christian as we continue our systematic march through the introduction and greeting of Paul's letter to Titus, his true child in a common faith. And so may God be glorified and the church built up in true faith and godliness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you live, that you govern, you reign over all things. We thank you that you are not only a God who is far off, but one who has drawn near in our Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry, and then you have drawn near again in the sending of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus into the world, into your church, to bear testimony to him. And we pray that this same Spirit who bears testimony within the hearts of us believers would be at work in the hearts of our children and our neighbors, calling many from this great city of San Antonio into the kingdom of God, and out of the darkness of our sin. We pray, Heavenly Father, that this letter that your Apostle Paul wrote to Titus so many years ago would continue to breathe new life into your church here and across the world. We humbly ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church. Amen.